So remain standing for the reading of God's word that you will find in 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 7 down through verse 21. Let's first ask for the Lord to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Almighty God, as we come before you now, we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you inspired that which we are about to read. And you have revealed your word to us. You empower preachers to preach this inspired word. And you open the hearts and ears of people to receive your inspired word. May your Holy Spirit do his marvelous work. We now ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Beginning, we're going to begin at verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he's laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So ends the reading of God's word. Be seated, please. Well, 
when Pastor Jess called me up and told us that, um, told me that, that the doctors in the re, I don't know if you know exactly, he was probably going out in the email, they're rearranging his jaw. <laughs> and it's difficult for him right now to speak, and that's why I am preaching this morning. I wanted to follow up on, on Jess's excellent teaching on the parable of the sower and the seed, and I didn't want to um, steal any of his thunder, so I, I said, what about me preaching on 1 John 3? What do you think about that? And he said, just go for it. So I'm going to go for it today. And he is, as you know, he's been stressing that genuine Christians, not simply those who profess to know Christ, genuine Christians will, not maybe, they will bear fruit. And he's mentioned several times, John chapter 15 of Jesus being the true of the vine, and we are... uh, and that we are his branches. And we've, we see in John 15 that important verse in verse 8 of John 15, which says this, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That's how we prove it, by our fruit. So as the parable says that we've been looking at, that fruit will be, that's uh, generated from good soil will be 30, 60, 100 fold. But it will be fruit that comes out of that good soil. We have seen, he mentioned last week, I believe, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And the new has come. And so when a person has God's spirit, their whole being is changed. They are truly a new creation. And perhaps many of us here can testify to that fact when perhaps when we were walking once in darkness, when our ears were uh, open to hear and our hearts were changed by the power of the Spirit, we saw that there was a dramatic change in our life. You know, let's, we're looking at a section today that drives home this point of what, should a, what a genuine Christian looks like. And we see here in verse 3, if you look at the text with me, We see that verse 3, that all those who have their hope centered upon Christ who is coming purify themselves. So that's why we should think constantly about that great inheritance stored up for us. And out of gratitude, we want to serve Jesus because of all that he has done for us, because of what he's, he died for us. He changed us by sending the Holy Spirit to change us, causing us to be born again. Take a look at verse 4. It says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and, and sin is lawlessness. Now, we're first to the fact of 
practicing sin practices lawlessness. If you want a good definition of what sin is, you don't have to go any further than 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. So it's absolutely paramount that we all understand that about what this precisely means. Now, you might think practicing sin, well, we all understand that we're sinners even by being redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus. We are painfully aware, though that bondage to sin has been broken, we'll bring that out more in a moment. Though that bondage is broken, we're still aware that we sin every day in thought, word, and deed against the Lord. And we got to distinguish between sporadically falling into sin, which we do, and living as a lifestyle in sin. Now, those are two dramatically different things, falling into sin sporadically and living a lifestyle of sin. Now, God chose the Greek language to inspire the New Testament. And one of the the marvelous things about the Greek language is it's very precise, more so than English. And Greek grammar is very important. And of all the places in the Word of God, we're going to see how Greek grammar plays an important point to drive home what the apostle wants us to understand. So the present tense, whenever you have the present tense, This is what it reveals. Well, much like in English, ongoing action. A constant way of of walking. In other words, a lifestyle. The present tense conveys a lifestyle. Now, if you look at verse 5, it says, And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him... There is no sin. In other words, you know that he, that is Jesus, appeared to take away the sins for all those for whom he came to die for their sins. And in him, of course, the scripture says there is no sin at all. Jesus was sinless in his human nature. Now remember, we got to remember what the angel told Joseph when he found out that his wife, his betrothed, was with child. He knew that he was not the father of this child. The, the scriptures in Matthew 1 says not to embarrass her. He was going to put her away secretly. And yet the angel comes and says, no, Joseph, you don't want to do this because that which is, she's carrying is a holy child conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son And I'm going to tell you what you need to call this son. You will need to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what we see here, the whole purpose of the eternal son of God coming into this world in his incarnation, assuming real human nature was to save sinners by atoning for their sins, covering all their sins and cleansing them forever. So Jesus' death and his resurrection accomplished 
the destruction of sin for those who he came to die for. As the scripture says here, he appeared to take away sin. Now, I want us to take a look at a couple passages to illustrate, to, to bring out what this section is teaching. So, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, we read, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Then I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. And look at verses 14 and 15. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, a key passage that dovetails with this very well is another passage I want us to turn to, and that is John chapter 8, verses 34 and 36. So turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Jesus was responding to those who had believed in him in a sense. But he goes on and says to those, Jesus answered them saying, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, one of the things that we ought to recognize here in, in John 8 is, remember I already said that the Greek present tense illustrates or conveys ongoing action. So what Jesus is saying, everyone who commits sin, that is, everyone whose lifestyle is that of sinfulness, he says they're in bondage. They're in bondage to that sin. But he has come to set those who are in bondage to sin free. So the work of Christ in our lives is to set us free from that bondage of sin. And he came to set us free and he has set us free in himself and what he did for us. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Hallelujah. That that is the word of God and what that conveys. 
Now take a look at, turn back to 1 John chapter 3. Take a look at verse 6 for a moment where it says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You know, one of the things, the reason why we need to emphasize these, these tenses, I happen to use and have used for years the New American Standard, but if you were to look at the King James, the King James is still a, a good translation, faithful translation of the scriptures. It'll say, he talks about sins, and when we get down to verse 19, no one who is born of God sins, and you sit there and you scratch your head and say, well, I don't understand. What do you mean I don't sin? Because I know I sin. But everything is resolved. That's why it's helpful. I know the New American Standard inserts the word practice. Why? To convey the meaning of the present tense. So here in, in 1 John 3, 6, it says, No one who abides in him sins. Present tense, no one who is living in Jesus continues to sin. That's what the verse is saying. And we see here in regard to, to verse 6 that those who abide in him, they know him, they continually know him. But also it says anyone who does not know him, they don't abide in him on an ongoing basis. Now, I can't stress how important this is for us to understand. Again, because people say, I know I've sinned. But here's the thing. You, if you know Jesus and he's in your life, you're not living in sin. That's not your lifestyle. You're not practicing it on an ongoing basis. And so we see there's a big difference of falling into sin and living in sin. I guess I know no better uh, example in the scriptures than King David. King David, as you are aware, fell into various serious sin, did he not? Committed adultery. And then to cover that up has Bathsheba's husband on the front of the battle line so that he'll get killed. So he's guilty of murder. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of murder. And there's all indication from the word of God that he may have remained in that state as, as much as a year. And we read the, the Psalms that talks about his sin wearing him down. Wearing him down, I think, because of the guilt of his sin and then the encounter of Nathan the prophet tells him that little, that little story and about uh, the sheep, the little ewe lamb, the, the man who had the little ewe lamb and is taken away. And um, David is furious. What ought to be done to that man? And Nathan says, King, you are that man. And it all comes crashing down. And we know from the scriptures, Psalm 32 is that great confession of sin. So this, and we need to understand that the scripture says when Solomon had assumed the throne of 
Israel after David's death, we're told even in uh, when Solomon sins, how God says, Solomon, your heart was not right before me as your fathers were. David was even after considering all that he had done, the Bible still says he is the man after God's own heart. Fell into grievous sin, but he did not live in that sin. He repented. He did not live in that sin. Therein is the difference. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices righteousness, present tense, the one who lives a lifestyle of seeking the Lord's faith, seeking to want to be obedient to the scriptures, they are, they are righteous, it says. Now it says, let no one deceive you. You know, one of the worst things I could ever imagine is to be spiritually deceived. Imagine a person living their entire life and then facing Jesus on that day of judgment because that's all of humanity will be brought before him as Matthew 25 says. Imagine living your whole life thinking all is well with your soul only, only to hear Jesus say to that person, I never knew you Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. That would be tragic, tragic to think it's all well. And your whole eternity has been turned upside down and you thought you were safe and you weren't. And so deception is a, t- is a terrible thing. That's why Again, I believe why 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this, that Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? In other words, don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. And we know that passage in Matthew 7 that Pastor Jess has alluded to. There will be people on that day of judgment who cast out demons, who did many wonderful works in the name of Jesus. And yet Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you, and here's the key. Depart from me, you lawless ones, meaning they were practicing sin. We got to be careful that we do not deceive ourselves. So here's the test that we each ought to give ourselves. Is Jesus really and truly in me? So you ask yourself, do do I want to serve Jesus with my whole heart? Do um, do I want uh, not to live in sin? Do I... And when I do sin, does it grieve us that we have sinned against Almighty God? Does that bother us and cause us to go and ask God for forgiveness? 
You know, First John, take a look at First John 3, 8. It says, no one who practices sin, present tense, ongoing action, no one whose lifestyle is sin, that was, says the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, what we see here, can this not be more clear? If we practice a lifestyle of sin, we're of the devil. We're not of God. We're of the devil. And so the key is, what is our lifestyle like? What, what, what are our goals? What, what are our purposes in life? Uh, do we, are we seeing victories along the way? Yeah, we fall, but do we seeing some victories over sin? So the key is, what is our lifestyle like? And where is our treasure? You know, a great theological uh, debate is brought out sometimes in the latter part of verse 8 here. Those who practice, this, who practice sin, the scripture says, are of the devil. But it says, but now the Son of God has appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now here it's the Greek, the Greek tense changes to what is called the aorist tense. Now that's similar to our past tense. So it says the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now the aorist tense conveys point action, something that has happened. That's the stress. So there is at some point in history, the Son of God has destroyed the works of the devil. Well, when did he do that? Well, on the cross is where he did that. On the cross. Let me read, you can turn with me if you want, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the account of the, the fall of man. And then God is spelling out the, the curses to all the respective parties who sinned. And we see the first promise of victory, of a Messiah to come. Genesis 3.15 says, God is saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now to understand the significance, this is fulfilled on the Calvary's cross. Jesus was bruised on the hill. In other words, he was killed. But Jesus on the cross crushed the head of the serpent. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. 
look at verses 13 through 15. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having counseled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it away, out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Born in sin, that corruption in sin, we have all our lives, we were piling up this, this huge debt. Just imagine this, this huge debt of sin. Why? Because we broke the law of God. We're still under a curse if we don't obey all that is written in the law. Galatians 3.10 says, to all those who are the works of the law, Cursed are all those who do not abide by all the works therein. And that's why Paul says the law of God condemns us. That's why he says in Romans 7, the the, the Ten Commandments, that's one reason why I carry that, to remind me of what Jesus has done for me and how I should live. Jesus on the cross all that sin that we had committed and that would have condemned us. How many sins does it take to condemn us to hell? James 2.10 says, he who kept the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of them all. He has erased it. He has forgiven that debt. He canceled it out. That's where he destroyed the works of the devil. Right there. And so what we see here, you and I, through Jesus, we have been freed from the tyrant, the devil. Freed from the tyrant. You know, 1 John, looking again at 1 John 3, verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. No one, and because his seed abides in him, he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, verse nine talks about another wonderful work of the Lord Jesus. Being born of God. If you're born of God, you don't practice sin. Tonight, as I continue my uh, teaching through the gospel of Count of John, I've come to John chapter 3, and we're going to have a different interpretation of John 3. Uh, you can talk to me later what, what, what I meant by that. John 3 is Jesus's dealings with Nicodemus talking about the necessity of the rebirth. 
You gotta be born again if you're gonna see the kingdom of God. If we are born of God, we are a new creation. There's no any maybe about it. We are a new creation. And a new creation obviously does not practice a lifestyle of sin. So why doesn't the one born of God here in the text, why is it that you and I do not practice sin? Well, the answer in the scripture here, look at it. Because his seed, present tense, abides in us and we cannot sin because we are born of God. Now here's another shift in in the Greek tense. It's called the perfect tense. And it says being born of God, that's perfect tense. Now what does the perfect tense convey? It conveys something that has happened in the past, point action, but whose effect continues into the future. In other words, he who is born of God, perfect tense, there, there was some point when we were born of God and entered the kingdom of God. And that effect carries on. Well, how does it carry on? Through not practicing sin, obeying the Lord. That's how it carries on. If you are born again, you are a new creation. So being born of God is when, to use the theological term, which is found in the scriptures, that's when we were regenerated. That's when we received a new heart. So we got to ask the question, who regenerated us? Did we regenerate ourselves? Did we cause ourselves to be born again? Is anybody here that chose who your parents are going to be? Chose what day you're going to be born? I don't think so, right? We didn't have any choice in that. God sovereignly chose us. So who regenerated us? God. God's seed regenerated us. Well, who is that seed? It's none other than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that seed. Turn with me to two passages. Turn over to Romans 8, 9 and 10. Well, actually, we need to back up to verse 6 to to get the full force of what the passage says. So Romans 8, 6 says, For the mindset on the flesh, by the way, that's a lifestyle. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Brethren, you and I have got to have that seed in us. We have to have that seed. 
We have to have that seed that caused us to be born again. We have to have that seed that causes us to want to obey the law of God and not dwell on the flesh. Turn to another passage that brings this out of the nature of what this seed is. Turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and look at verses 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, now watch closely, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. Brethren, our, that seed is the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to want to obey the law of God. That Holy Spirit is that seed that enables you and I not to practice sin as lifestyle. Now look, take a look, turn back to 1 John 3, look at verse 10. It says, now notice how he's developing the whole point. He says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so we see the apostle has been building the case of what Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And if he's destroyed the works of the devil in the lives of those who he came to save, they're not going to be practicing sin because they have the Holy Spirit, the seed of God within them. So he says it's obvious. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's obvious who the children of God are and who the, the children of the devil are. Jesus brings that out quite clearly to those in John chapter 8. They, th- they were deceiving themselves. We're children of Abraham. Jesus says, if you were children of Abraham, you would not be doing what you're doing against me. No, your father's not Abraham. Your father is the devil. And the devil was a sinner from the beginning. From the beginning. You are of your father, the devil. Now imagine how that impacted those people who thought all was well. We're Israelites. We're okay. No, you're not okay. Because your lifestyle betrays what you profess. Now, beginning in verse 10 of 1 John through verse 20, the Apostle John adds a very important thing into this whole equation of what it means to walk with God or to practice righteousness as opposed to not practicing sin. Here's the thing that he adds to the equation. Look at it. Verse 11 and following. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. 
For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Now, look carefully at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love, that's present tense, by the way. He whose lifestyle is not manifested through love abides still in death. In other words, they haven't been delivered out of death yet. Now, let me just mention to you the significance of this. In John chapter 13, Jesus said this important thing to his disciples, recorded in verse 34 and 35 of John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Watch verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If, if you love one another, present tense. Cain was a prime example of one who, whose father was the devil. He was a murderer. And, um, and the proof that you and I have left the domain of darkness and death the proof is that you and I are living a life of loving one another, sacrificing for one another. That's the proof. Remember Jesus said in John 15, by bearing much fruit, you prove to be my disciples. And proving to be a disciple of Jesus is walking in love, loving one another. You know, sometimes, you know, when I engage, one of the things I always like to do when I'm talking to people and sharing the gospel with them, see, a lot of people have this work uh, righteous mentality. Well, I'm good with God because I haven't killed anybody. I haven't been unfaithful to my my wife or my husband. So I I haven't done this. You know, Jesus just puts the blowtorch to all of this in Matthew 5, 21. For example, what he has to say about murder. Turn with me to Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Here's what Jesus said about the sixth commandment. You have heard that it was said by the ancients, you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? When have we not been angry with someone, with a spouse, with a child, uh, with a friend? We've lost our temper. Jesus says, well, you've just broke the sixth commandment. Now, how many, how many sins does it take to send us to hell? One. See, Jesus said, sinning is not just something external, it is internal. And if you are angry with a brother, by the way, he says you commit adultery too. If you lust after someone, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. And so we see here how when it talks about the necessity that proving that we've passed out of death into life by loving one another, how is that love lived out? Well, verse 16 of, of our text says, we know love by this. Now he's gonna tell us what it means. That he, he that is Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Jesus sacrificed himself on Calvary's cross for us. He laid down his life to save us. Later on in 1 John, it says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the love of God is that he sent the eternal son to die that was an act of self-sacrifice. He was putting, what was Jesus doing? He was putting others before himself, right? And he tells us, then we need to do the same thing. We need to put other people ahead of ourselves. I want us to look at one other passage. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 Beginning at verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with a God with a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, obviously, you and I, we can't atone for the sins of others like Jesus did. Nonetheless, the scripture says he died for us, he sacrificed for us. Likewise, you and I need to sacrifice for one another. That is love. So putting others first ahead of ourselves. That is showing love. And we need to walk in that. Now, he, now he's going to get very specific here how we love one another. 
Look at verse 17 of 1 John 3. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God, present tense, abide in him? Now, one thing here, he's obviously talking about money. He's talking about physical goods. If we see, now, there's another thing that's important here about the word behold. When it says, if you behold your brother in need, that means there's no second guessing about it. There is a real need, and you know there's a real need. Uh, They're hungry. They need food. Uh, something has happened to where they don't have their residence or they can pay their rent or something. Well, they need help. And if we have the financial resources to help them, we must help them. We must help them. Now, we're not talking about, I know being in the pastorate, I don't know if you've experienced it here yet, but you may have and elsewhere. You got people coming wanting handouts all the, I mean, frequently they'll give a call needing help. Or someone would come up to you on the street and say, hey man, my, my, I don't know why, it must go around against this group. Oh, I've run out of gas, I need some gas, can you help me out? I had a, uh, someone, a, a friend say to me, they, they did that very thing and he said, you're out of gas? Come on, go down, to the, see that shell station that's going down there and I'm gonna fill your gas tank up. They go, oh no, that's all right. No, come on, come on. You need gas? You're out of gas? Come on. Now they were trying just to get money out. Sometimes you don't know what, what the situation is. What this passage is talking about, you, you have beheld the need And God forbid, if you've beheld the need, you shut up a heart of compassion. God forbid. If we do that, then the Bible says, where's the love of God? Where's the love of God in you that's supposed to be there? Hey, you're a new creation. You're a new creation. You should desire to help people. You see, love is part of carrying out 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where it says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if Jesus Christ is in you. You know how you can test yourself, how I can test myself? Do I help people in need when I know they're in need? Do I do that? We know our heart. That is one way you can test yourself. And then look at verse 18. You see, the reason the apostle says this, look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That means we don't say to the person we've beheld in need, oh, bless your heart, I'm sorry that you don't have anything to eat today. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry that you, you can't pay the rent this month because of certain things that have happened. Oh, I'm sorry. No, we don't love in word only. We love in deed. 
I've said this to children, my own children from time to time. They may have done something that's, that's sinful and they come and confess. You know, Dad, you know, you know I love you. And I said, yeah, I understand. But let me, you do know that love is an action. So next time, be more circumspect of, of your actions. Not just say, I love you, but show me you love me. Show me you love me. And then it says, verse 19, this is how we assure ourselves before God. Look what it says. We shall know by this that we, we are the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. As we examine ourselves and we see the love of God in us, then that gives us confidence. You know, verse 20 says, in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Well, you know, our heart is, self-reflect, is a self-reflecting power. And our heart, you know, our conscience either accuses us or justifies us. But the bottom line here is we may justify ourselves by an action, but God is the one who really knows the truth and knows whether we can justify ourselves by our actions or not. And God knows all things. Um, if, our, if our conscience acquits us, as we, we look at it and say, you know, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know the bondage has been broken. I'm not the same man or woman that I once was. And I know where my heart is. I know my desires. And I, I, I do seek to try to as best in the Lord's help to put other people first, then we are then assuring ourselves that we know God. So let's, let's conclude. The Christian, the genuine Christian, bears fruit on an ongoing basis, 30, 60, 100 fold. Not baby, they, they will. And part of that bearing of the fruit is loving one another as Jesus loved us. And so we assess, I'm not with the devil because I'm not living in sin, but I'm with Jesus and his seed abides in me and that gives me confidence. And so we see here that Again, that good soil that Pastor Jess has been talking about, oh, it, it, it will bear fruit. It will bear fruit, most assuredly. It must bear fruit. Let's pray and ask the Lord. Lord, we ask as we come before you, we recognize our frailties. We recognize our weakness. Nonetheless, as we examine our hearts, we know that we, that we do love you and we're seeking to, to show that love by what we do, not just by what we say. Lord, help us to be more fruitful, more loving, and so prove to be Jesus' disciples. We ask in your precious name, amen.